Welcome back to Red Star Radio and what an appropriate day to be recording a special episode with a guest we'll be introducing in a moment. It's the day that um, Mr. Tony Blair in uh, the, in merry old England decided to re-enter the public debate about um, the so-called war on terror and venture his opinions on Afghanistan, uh, which uh, I will be asking our guest about in a moment. And it just reminded me of like all bad revivals, um, the hits sounded much worse the second time around. So, uh, Layla, who do we have with us today to discuss the specific topic of propaganda? We are very pleased to welcome Max Blumenthal, who is the editor-in-chief of The Grey Zone. He is an award-winning journalist and the author of several books, including the best-selling Republican Gamora. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Max. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Well, um, Max, I wanted to uh, start off by... Um, jumping in on the question we I uh, just sort of raised in my intro there, which is the the re-entry of nobody's favorite former British Prime Minister, though there is a long list of nobody's favorite British Prime Ministers. Um, Tony Blair has come out today and given a speech in response to Biden's final pullout from Afghanistan, where he essentially uh, doubled down on, uh, well, everything he said 20 years ago about the need to for uh, the West to engage in nation, what he called nation building in places like Afghanistan. And menacingly enough, he mentioned a new new region that they're looking at, apparently the Sahel region of Africa. But he said in, uh, what I wanted to get your reaction specifically to, Max, was he said that uh, radical Islam needed to be fought by the West like it fought revolutionary communism. And given the, <laughs> um, what you covered in your book, Management of Savagery, I wanted to get your specific reaction to that. Well, yeah, a few points about Tony Blair before reacting directly to that. First of all, he's faced zero accountability for lying to the British public, manipulating the intelligence services to his own political ends, and his role in one of the greatest crimes in recent human history. It's definitely the greatest crime of the 21st century, which was the invasion of Iraq. He hasn't even had a shoe thrown at him. And so... He's still free to make these absurd statements. And what he said that interested me about in his attack on Biden for Biden embracing the will of the American public and the military, specifically the rank and file of the military, to leave a 20-year war was that Blair was being opportunistic. He was saying there isn't the military, the same appetite for military intervention in the U.S., so NATO and the EU should take on the mantle of invading, basically bombing brown people. Well, NATO is the U.S. It basically is the United States. It's, it's the U.S.'s mechanism for encircling Russia and eroding or completely shattering European sovereignty uh, behind European faces and puppets like Jen, Jen Stoltenberg. So basically what Blair is calling for is internal subversion within the United States, uh, subversion of presidential executive authority and the de democratic will of the American voter with this external foreign-based global force in order to bomb brown people, to continue these interventions endlessly. Uh, and it's not going to go over well with Europeans. Europeans do not have the appetite either, because unlike the U.S., which accepted something like 60,000 Syrian refugees, Europeans bear the direct brunt of interventions like NATO's assault on Libya, 
like the dirty war on Syria. And it's amazing that the American public hasn't had the opportunity to even mentally connect those wars to the refugee outflow and crisis that Europe felt, which has been like steroids for the far right in Europe. That's one of the major themes of my book, The Management of Savagery. It's blowback. And when Blair says we need to go after radical Islam the same way we went after revolutionary communism, well, this is just a historical. Typically, it's Blair-esque in its ahistoricity because it was radical Islam that the UK under Thatcher and the US under Carter and then Reagan weaponized in order to destroy revolutionary communism in Afghanistan in order and, and to lay the basis, the foundation for the Afghan catastrophe that continues with the second uh, way, the, 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 the revival of Taliban control over Afghanistan. So the fact that Blair faces so little accountability that he can deliver this speech at the premier military think tank in the UK make such a historical statements is really not just a commentary on Tony Blair, but on the entire British and European elite. Yeah, that's um, it, what struck me from reading it was just the way that like um, he's not moved at all from like the um, what I would call like the, the Fukuyamaist propaganda of the early 2000s. Um, yeah. He hasn't even changed his lines. Um, it's, it's like all the things that you covered in your recent book. Um, regarding the long-term collaboration of the British and the American ruling classes with reactionary uh, theocratic regimes in the, the Gulf area and their promotion of reactionary Islamic movements um, across the region. Oh, that never happened in Tony Blair's world, just didn't even register. But uh, oh, he, went, he went on to consult for the UAE. and Yeah, and the Saudis too. Like he's, he's very, I think he's probably, I think he's on good terms with MBS. <laughs> oh, absolutely um, no 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 more civilized a man will be found um but um the 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 freak out over the withdrawal max uh by like the uh the u.s and the british to be honest i mean there's another ludicrous debate in our parliament going on at the moment where keir starmer's trying to out imperialist boris johnson um uh, but the freak out in the, like the u.s political and media class over the withdrawal from afghanistan i mean why has it been so severe, given that like um, Trump was doing a deal with the Taliban or uh, and then Biden was talking was was talking about doing this. But it's like that this caught them by surprise or um, they didn't see it coming. But like, why are they uh, freaking out as much as they are, Max, in your estimation? Because the media in Washington is effectively an arm of the Pentagon. The Pentagon is the most powerful force in American society from an uh, informational or messaging standpoint. Um, the military remains the most respected institution in American life and military leadership, which is completely corrupt and devious, often gets conflated in the public mind with the military itself and the rank and file. But within the Beltway, there is a completely insular culture in the city I grew up in where the reporters rely entirely on the Pentagon or the State Department or various White House officials for access and information 
and it's their bread and butter. Once once they get once their access gets cut off, then they turn into Max Blumenthal and they become <laughs> alter, alternative media alt left uh, psychopaths who are just put out into the wilderness. And so that culture attracts a certain kind of personality. The stenographer personality is suggestible, submissive, uh, has advanced degrees, but is actually extremely uneducated. In Washington, D.C., this uh, entire dis- you know, area, we, we call it the DMV. This, 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 this culture of the media is very specific to the DMV. And they only live in certain designated areas. Northern Virginia, they'll live in sort of gated communities where they may encounter a few neighbors who are just like them, upper middle class or upper class. And then they're on the highway and they park at their job and that's their life. Same thing in suburban Maryland where some of them live. And then in Washington, D.C., the city's been heavily gentrified thanks to the post 9-11 economy, which brought all this contractor money in through the Defense Department's massive budget. So the black population's been um, displaced in several areas. But growing up here, there was eight wards in D.C. and all the media who are almost all white lived in one ward called Ward 3, which was literally severed from the rest of the city by one of the largest urban forests in the country. So you basically had to walk through a a giant forest full of bears and deers. Well, there's no bears, but foxes and deer to get to them. So they live, they literally live separate from the, what you could call the indigenous population. And yet they write about the world. Thomas Friedman, I mean, perfect example. He married one of the wealthiest heiresses in the country. He has a giant palatial home in suburban DC and a mansion uh, as his second home, Uh, just an unbelievable mansion. And this is the New York Times voice on how the world works and specifically on foreign policy. And the stuff he says, it just gets laughed at by regular people. It's so bonkers. I mean, I remember one column he wrote after the U.S. bombed Syria over uh, one of the concocted gas attacks. I think it was the first one in Khan Sheikhoun. And he wrote that the U.S. needs to let ISIS grow. He need that ISIS is basically our friend in Syria. And he just said this openly. I mean, I can't imagine how any normal person who is actually accountable would say such a thing. But these people culturally are not accountable to any real people. They're in their own little Elysium bubble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he has spoken to a lot of taxi drivers, though, uh, Thomas. Friedman. Well, that's that's uh, the joke about him, because it perfectly encapsulates <laughs> the parachute mentality of these people where the only real people they meet are those who give them rides. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's interesting. Yeah. I feel like these folks just basically talk to one another. I like these, these, these kind of organs, like the New York times, the financial times, they're more so venues through which uh, people high up in politics and in business can talk to one another. And that's why it seems so ridiculous to the rest of us who are outside their circles. You got to watch you got to watch the press conferences with Jen Psaki like you, you, a lot of highlights or lowlights will appear in kind of soundbite meme form on Twitter. But if you actually watch them, you can see the way Psaki works the room as one of them where she 
addresses mm. the reporters on a very personal basis, uh, says, you know, congratulations on the birth of your second son. Like, how's your oh. wife doing? And the reporters are like, wow, Jen Psaki acknowledged me. And they're, <laughs> they're, they're like, she's sort of an alpha female. Like you can see she works out like 25 hours a day and, you know, then goes to soul cycle and, <laughs> You know, the rest of them are kind of a lot of the rest of them are kind of frumpy and they're they're looking for approval and they get it from her and then it makes them like her. And then you have the one guy in the room who's uh, adversarial and it's Peter Ducey, who's sort of like <laughs> the fail son of uh, Steve Ducey, who is this right wing like doofus shock jock who was on the radio in the U.S. for a long time. And he'd be like, let's what's up next on the rooster roster. OK, <laughs> Mike Dukakis rides around in a tank. What a jerk. And and then he, he rose to be some Fox host. So this kid, uh, he's been raised in the Beltway media as well. And the White House is trying to bring him in by acknowledging him and giving him uh, sort of a voice as the token adversarial person. But there's no one who really comes from the outside of that culture and actually ask hard questions. No one will touch the third rail, which is empire. And when mm -hmm. it comes to, you know, the new normal, you know, when it, when they were, we're rolling out booster shots, people, the only question will be like, you know, uh, it, it, there's, there's no critical question like about, well, what does this say about vaccine efficacy or, or will this be the last booster shot? It's all about like, how quickly can you get the booster shots? And like, Will the booster shots be the boostiest shots that we ever shot? It's just like that. Um, it's very personal. I mean, these a lot of the people then go back. They go from media into government. Yeah. Um, you have a guy, Pete Williams at NBC. He's their top national security correspondent. He was the former spokesman for the Pentagon under George H.W. Bush. Um, so if you know this culture, then you can really see that how undemocratic this country is that our media is essentially state media behind a corporate veneer. Well, speaking of which, um, so you're definitely noticing the censorship that's gone on for for probably decades now. Um, it, it's become a bit more obvious to me in recent times with especially the COVID stuff that's been happening. I think a lot of people came into their awareness with the kind of censorship that went on during Trump's uh, time in office. So this current wave of censorship, like maybe taken up a notch in recent times, has been enthusiastically supported by large parts of the left, um, seemingly with the 2016 election of Trump. Um, if we're if we're being honest, like Trump didn't govern that differently from Rubio or Jeb Bush. Bush. So can you can you um, talk about why you think a large faction of the U.S. ruling class became so crazy about uh, Trump and necessitated, which necessitated so much uh, censorship? Well, great question. I, I addressed this with CJ Hopkins, uh, mm -hmm. who writes at the Consent Factory at my last Rockfin live stream. So if you go to my Rockfin channel, it's called we'll link to it. Foreign mm -hmm. Agents. Uh, CJ addressed this in, de in detail. It's something he's been writing about and thinking about. But, you know, if you watch the first Republican debate, of the 2016 campaign, it was such a transitional moment in American politics because Donald Trump, it's where Donald Trump rose from the pack and said things that were completely forbidden in U.S. politics for, for my mm -hmm. entire life. What he said was that I have, he got attacked for donating to Hillary Clinton by someone, I think it was Ted Cruz, who was supposed to be the like fake pseudo populist candidate, Ted Cruz, former Goldman Sachs banker, you know, <laughs> my, uh, you know, Cuban American gusano, like, 
you know, he checks all the elite boxes <laughs> and is pretending to be a man of the people. And he'll go out like with a camouflage hat. And it looks like when Mr. Burns tried to dress up as a skate, <laughs> you know, so Ted Cruz attacks him and said, you donated to Hillary Clinton. And he said, I donated to you. I donated <laughs> to most of you. I donated to all of you. I control all of you because I'm a billionaire and that's the way American <laughs> politics works. And it's bullshit. He actually said that. And like those of us watching at home, we were all high fiving. We were like, this is awesome. Like, and the, the, uh, you know, white workers and whatever, everyone who feels like they've been screwed over was just like, okay, well maybe we, we never get anything from the Republicans except maybe we get like like Bush gave us like a $100 tax rebate while he you know, helped his rich buddies. But this guy's at least going to stick it to the man. So we're going to support him. So Trump was just sort of this popul populist icon and he rose swiftly. Everyone is predicting he was going to fail, all, all the pundits, because they they don't know anything. Of, like I said, they don't have any connection with the American public socially or culturally. So they couldn't see the writing on the wall. It was obvious Trump was going to win. When he did, the Russiagate, when, and this was before he was elected, the Russiagate narrative came in. Uh, it was sort of a democratic operation that was slowly merging with the FBI through Operation Crossfire Hurricane and a lot of private intelligence actors, Christopher Steele, who were brought in by the Democrats. And what they wanted to do is create a narrative about Trump that would stymie his agenda. And for the national security state hawks, it would help electrify the new Cold War that they needed with Russia in order to justify these massive Pentagon and intelligence budgets, as well as the FBI's own budget to surveil the U.S. population, because I don't know, Russians might be hiding under everyone's bed. Uh, and so Trump comes into office already facing the fear that he will be prosecuted and that his children will be jailed for Russian collusion that did not exist. Mm -hmm. And it, I think it, it, it really effectively prevented Trump from fulfilling many of the promises. Trump cowered before this uh, initially. It, it led him to uh, hide behind the generals. He put a lot of the, 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 the Pentagon and military leadership forward to give himself patriotic cover. He threw Bannon under the bus. It was Bannon who guided his you know, rogue uh, populist 2016 campaign. Bannon's final stand was actually on opposing, uh, adding more troops to Afghanistan. And then uh, Trump initiated the trillion dollar tax cut, which I think was the worst thing he did. And that was a way of basically buying off Congress because half of the members, Republican members of Congress go into lobbying and won't go to work for the Koch brothers and big business and Wall Street. And so they they needed that tax cut like their donors needed that tax cut. Their future employers needed that tax cut. So Trump bought himself a lot of cover and a lot of support against the investigation, which continued endlessly. And it flowed sort of seamlessly into January 6th which provided the impetus for militarizing D.C., shutting down all activism around the Capitol. Uh, you know, we were looking at 40,000 troops on the streets of D.C. for months because a bunch of hooligans uh, rampaged through the Capitol for a few hours. I was there covering it. They were out of there by 6 p.m. It was just like the, there was an orderly exit after a quick rampage. Mm -hmm. And this has been another boon for the security state.
and Trump it, it, and it allowed the specter of Trump to continue to haunt politics and provided Biden with a lot of cover. So Donald Trump, you know, has given the elite a lot of utility, even as he it was it was really uh, kind of brilliant the way they gamed the Trump era to get their own long term agenda through and how how isolated Donald Trump was. I think that's what caused him to overreact. And his final attempt at lashing out was leading his gang of dupes and, you know, bamboozled and hoodwinked hooligans to the Capitol to send a message to the establishment, which, you know, wound up playing perfectly into the FBI's hands. A lot of people on the left were saying, oh, this is Donald Trump's insurrection. It almost succeeded with collusion <laughs> with the Pentagon chiefs. But, you know, being there, I was just like, where the fuck are the police? Like, if yeah. the, you know, if there's if this was BLM, the FBI would have had, you know, there will. I, I mean, on June 1st, sorry, July 1st, 2020, there was the military in the streets to crack down on BLM. I was shot at by DC police with beanbag rounds and rubber bullets. It was insane. Here, there was nobody there. There was an armored tactical vehicle in front of the Capitol, and people were sitting on it smoking blunts. Like mm. they obviously stood down in order to lead the Trumpians into this political trap and lead the American public into the current era we're in, where January, the post-January 6th era has been, um, as, as, has been layered over, layered atop the new normal. And, you know, the phase we're in with the new normal, you mentioned, Layla, the censorship. This is the hardest censorship we've ever experienced. Online censorship. Yeah. YouTube is removing congressional hearings. YouTube is removing press conferences of governors who contradict <laughs> the quote unquote science. YouTube would remove this if I said any of this on the Gray Zone channel. Uh, Twitter is putting warning labels on people who make factual scientific statements like Representative Thomas Massey, who said natural immunity confers stronger antibodies than naive vaccination, according to the largest study ever conducted in Israel. That got a warning label. Alex Berenson was removed without explanation. And yeah. the left is nowhere to be found, completely yeah. neutralized. The same left that howls whenever correctly whenever anti-imperialists or Venezuelan officials or Palestine solidarity activists are censored, they're nowhere to be found here. Yeah, the failure of the left to take what is should be very obvious to anyone on the left, which is a principled stance for free speech, regardless of what someone is saying. Um, they've been failing to do that, I think, for a while, but it's taken a a, a very harsh, uh, well, left turn, let's say, uh, during this uh, COVID new normal era. Um, well, it started, remember, Hillary Clinton's first speech after losing what it was, was fake news. We need to stop fake news. Yeah. You know? And what was fake news, I thought, was these CD websites where um, <laughs> false clickbait stories were written in order to generate ad revenue. But what she was talking about was anything that contravenes the establishment's narrative and interferes with our ability to gain the compliance of the American public and specifically the educated middle class uh, as progressives who can prove resistant sometimes. So that speech signaled what was to come. And weeks later, Alex Jones, this obviously demented but highly entertaining circus barker, was removed <laughs> in coordinated fashion 
from every single platform online, which showed the marriage of big tech and the security state. He was even removed from Pinterest. I'm like, who's going on Pinterest to get like the latest info wars stuff? Yeah. And I spoke out about it on, I I said, this is a dangerous precedent because it's not going to stop with Alex Jones, but I saw the kind of red rose DSA types acting like it was like, uh, you know, victory day after world war two. It was like, we did it. The, the Austin Hitler has been uh, successfully marginalized. Um, I think it was probably you and Jimmy Dore are about the only people on the American left who said anything about it. The rest of them were cheering on cheering on Jones's removal from everything, which. Well, and then the president of the United States was removed, the outgoing president. Yeah. And that was another huge cause for celebration. And there were reports that uh, executives at Twitter and you know high level staff were actually crying because of the. <laughs> the, the, the importance of the decision that they made facebook suspended him for two years it really uh is whatever you think of trump i mean it, obviously i don't have anything particularly positive to say about him although his tweets were really entertaining and sometimes <laughs> well once he retweeted me and it caused like a national international <laughs> scandal like he retweeted he retweeted me once uh attacking john bolton who is yeah. you know, one of the worst <laughs> beings who've ever lived and yes I remember uh, my wife woke me up and said, Max, uh, the president just retweeted you. It's an international scandal. And the, the, the Israeli media did like they, they like assigned people as their Max Blumenthal retweet correspondence. And like the Jewish telegraphic agency did three articles about it by the same reporter. Haaretz did four articles about it. It was just every Israeli paper had to write about it because it was like – Donald Trump tweets anti-Semite Jew Max. <laughs> so the 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 everyone was I, I was not unscathed by the insanity of the censorship agenda. Uh, I found the whole thing kind of amusing at the time, but then just when Trump was censored, it sent the signal that anyone can be censored and will, and that you have to start thinking about not just being censored by the big tech giants, but whether your entire website will be taken down by the server. Most of us are using Amazon servers and you know whether it will be necessary to get on blockchain servers in order to preserve our own websites. That's what Press TV faced when its .com website was seized by the US government. It was not yeah. the first site seized by the U.S. government in recent months and years. Um, and we've written about this at the Gray Zone. The Department of Justice has a special unit mm-hmm. countering what it considers, uh, you know, the, the, the media of enemy states. Press TV is the official English language organ of the Iranian government. Um, but, you know, it's only a matter of time before independent websites face the same kind of penalty for going against, I, I would say, for violating the new normal. Yeah. Unfortunately, yes, I it I, things get like this at certain points in history. Like censorship is just, like Alex Berenson, when he got knocked off Twitter, he got back on as a uh, anonymous account and then he got knocked off again. But he, the last thing he tweeted was like censorship is stupid and it doesn't work. <laughs> and so I think, you know, you're, it's just going to be harder to speak the truth but everyone there's always an appetite for that there's people who always want to hear actual like 
true information. And so it's never going to go away. It's just going to become more difficult to do, unfortunately. But that's just the nature of the beast. I mean, it depends on what you're doing. Like if you're Richard Spencer and you're peddling racial hatred and Nazism, uh, you're always going to enjoy notoriety. That's true. He's back in the news and the mainstream media was his best friend. They needed him. But you are he doesn't have the organic audience that he would have had simply by stating facts and sticking to an authentic version of reality that others can relate to. He endorsed Joe Biden in 2020. I mean, he was doing anything he could to maintain notoriety by staying in the insane corporate media limelight. But, you know, you look at Jimmy Dore, he's trying to hold on to a version of reality that many people relate to. And so no matter how many times he's attacked and he's never promoted in mainstream media, his audience continues to grow. And that's the same phenomenon I think we saw in the 90s when the labeling of rap albums came in and it made it more appealing for suburban white kids to buy albums if the label was on than if it was off because the label signaled to them, this is transgressive. And if you have doggy style or ghetto boys, uh, whatever, you're giving the finger to dad. But if it doesn't (laughs) have the label, you know, what the hell does dad care if you have like, uh, I don't know, boys to men. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, speaking as one of those suburban uh, white guys, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. Um, the I, I don't associate British accents with the suburbs. It's just too unfamiliar <laughs> to me. Well, it's um, uh, it's, I, too, I, it's too fancy. <laughs> well, uh, from co-hosting with a someone from the North American continent, I can say that you all seem to think we live on some country estate somewhere. Um, like uh, we're, we're all stuck in a Richard Curtis movie. Yeah. <laughs> I can't uh, confirm that. No, I think you all live in like a really sad, uh, sort of drab row house somewhere, <laughs> yeah. surrounded by you know Pink Floyd animals covers, looking factories, cloaked in <laughs> coal smog, and it's true. You know, people, you peer inside these sad homes. They're you know miserable. <laughs> three concrete steps you walk up and you look inside and it looks like van gogh's potato eaters i mean that's kind of what there's there's two accents like that's one of them in britain and then there's the fancy accent which those are the estate um yeah it's um it's dickensian misery it's dickensian misery or it's like um you know uh bertie worcester basically a pg woodhouse (laughs) novel there's there's the two variations of british life paddling um, across a dank river in a ferry with Abel Magwitch and yeah you know that's that's kind of what we imagine but you know having been to Manchester um it's somewhere in between and I basically wound up the the, the I wound up seeing the UK through Richard Branson's trains and eating really bad stale cheese sandwiches oh yeah because I was on a Palestine Solidarity Committee tour where they would send me from one city to the next every day until I was driven completely insane, uh, just describing the misery and extermination of Gaza day after day without any break through 20 cities. Um, and I really did see 
the UK and I met a lot of incredible people, uh, I concluded that the UK actually has more of an organized left and certainly a more organized Palestine solidarity movement than the US, um, that it's easier to organize there, that there is more union presence, more union support for anti-imperialism, and then getting to Scotland. Um, and I've also had the chance to go to Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, I saw the potential in the country. Yeah, yeah. well, this is... Um uh, it, I wanted to uh, ask you specifically about the um, the one of the scandals that was used to destroy Corbyn, actually, Max, because the yeah. um, some of that potential. And I was I had a front row seat for this as, as a member of the Labour Party at the time in, in Manchester. Um, some of that potential was kind of unlocked with elements of the Corbyn leadership. But the remarkable thing was to watch the ruling class operation shut it down using two things, which was putting Corbyn on the wrong side of the Brexit question and then keeping him constantly on the hop with um, the anti-Semitism scandal, which was yep. very cynically deployed um, whenever they needed to, like basic, whenever it looked like Corbyn was making some progress, if they couldn't use the Brexit thing, they'd use the anti-Semitism thing again. And this was obvious to many of us who'd paid attention to like the the rhetoric of people like Benjamin Netanyahu and his allies um what with what they were doing with that but I'd like to get your comment on where that that narrative came from because it was deployed against and still is being deployed by Starmer against many Jewish socialist groups yeah. so like um you know apparently like being Jewish isn't enough you're anti-semitic if you're not literally in line with Naftali Bennett or the Likud leadership. So could you talk about where that originates from and like why it is that that's proved, why that's proved to be such a, a favorite tactic of not just like the Israel lobby, but also the uh, the national security establishment seems to love that as well. Right. Well, it's just a way of, um, it, 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 it's a it's a very effective way of neutralizing anyone on the left. And it's been tested in the United States most extensively. I mean, figures like Norman Finkelstein were kind of the beta test, but they weren't running for office. Jeremy Corbyn was someone who was an authentic leftist who was sponsoring a lot of us who spoke, uh, who did journalism and public speeches about Palestine and what was taking place there were part of the Palestine solidarity movement. The first talk I gave in the UK, I was coming from uh, Brussels, where I had spoke at the Russell Tribunal, a people's tribunal on Israeli crimes in Palestine. I'd just been reporting in Gaza on the assault that killed 55, 551 women and children in 2014. And I was invited to speak in Port Cullis House at Parliament by a parliamentarian I'd never heard of, a backbencher named Jeremy Corbyn. Basically, he would just sign off to open up Portcullis House for the public to hear these speakers. I come to the UK and I had not overcome jet lag. Um, I, you know, it, it was sort of chaotic. And, you know, I get to the talk an hour late. Like I'm still like basically like buttoning my shirt as I run in. I have like a huge cowlick on my head. And I come into the room, it's full of the Palestine solidarity community that Jeremy Corbyn was a part of. He wasn't able to be there because he uh, was away, but his staff was very welcoming. 
And basically because I was an hour late, the public was allowed to do a, like to come up and they did like kind of just an open mic where anyone could speak for five minutes and say whatever they want. Some guy I'd never heard of. Uh, well, I, I learned later that I, it wasn't that I learned later. There was a guy named Richard Millet there who was a major part of the early phase of germinating this anti-Semitism campaign against Corbyn, who was sort of the lead snitch slash spy of the Israel lobby on every event. And he claimed that a guy spoke before me who was a Holocaust denier, which I, I mean, I looked it up. The guy seemed very eccentric. Uh, he had called Israel a Nazi state in a sign he held at a rally, but I, I even I saw no evidence he was a Holocaust denier. I didn't know who he was. I wasn't even there. And then the Daily Mail, in its first attack on Corbyn on anti-Semitism, it's about this: Jeremy Corbyn hosts Holocaust denier Max Blumenthal for speech. That's that was like the headline, and that was the first like opening shot in the attack on him. And I went to his staff, who were so. Um, welcoming to me. And I said, you know, we really need to shoot this down and like come out hard against this. And they said, we've found that the public are with us and that the more we play into this narrative, uh, the weaker it makes us. So, you know, we'd prefer if you said nothing. They didn't say that specifically. We'd prefer if you said nothing, but that was the implication. So I didn't respond, even though it was my own reputation on the line as well. And you could just see that the less they responded, the stronger the narrative got until it ultimately consumed him and he was reluctant to challenge it along with the Brexit narrative where he kind of wound up being, I, I met with his, uh, his staff, his spokesman. Um, I, you know, I told Seamus Milne, actually, I remember talking to Seamus Milne who became his spokesman after I had returned from Germany where me and a Israeli colleague, David Sheen, an anti-Zionist spoke about the assault in Gaza in the Bundestag. And, you know, we confronted a member of the left party there who had called us anti-Semites in the national media. I, and yeah. I, was, I was just like, how fucking dare you? David went nuts. He was like, I live in Israel. Like, I'm always under threat. Like, how could you say this to me, to Gregor Gysi? And it became this kind of national scandal that, you know, he shouted at a member of parliament. The Bundestag passed a resolution declaring us persona non grata. <laughs> It was amazing. <laughs> the whole like right wing Springer press was attacking us as like Israel haters who are hunting Jews in parliament. It was, it was just unbelievable. I was, uh, you know, I, I could tell that I was being tracked by the BND because I stayed in Germany after Sheen left. And I came to the UK afterwards and I, I met with Seamus and, you know, I told him like, you know, Germany is a very frightening environment you know, what they're doing, how they're weaponizing anti-Semitism, even against Jews to shut down debate. It's truly disturbing. And he kind of was, I mean, this, this is like probably the, one of the greatest columnists the Guardian had in the last 20 years, one of the few sensible ones. Yeah. Uh, someone wrote who really an incredible book on the smearing of minor strike leader Arthur Scargill as well, like where, right. and the operations of the secret state. So you would think a man like that would understand what was going on. Right. And I didn't, I got to say, I didn't get the sense that he, 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 he understood the gravity of this narrative and how it was just going to come across the, the channel and affect them uh, once he joined Corbyn, because they really just did not strike back at any point. And then, as I was saying, Corbyn became consumed by, well, he be, he couldn't push back against the pressure to take the metropolitan position on on against Brexit. 
and it made his base feel deceived. It's why the red wall fell. It's so obvious what took place. And it was all his own indecision, his own inability to stake out a clear position. And when he challenged the media and in public speeches, you could feel the public behind him. But he couldn't do it. And it was be- and, and in so many ways, you know, having been on what's known as the left in the West, it was because he was a man of the left. And when you're in the Western left, you're around so many educated middle class people who care about their status so much uh, that they're really afraid to take on the they're they're afraid to be labeled anti-Semite. Uh, Kremlin sympathizer, Putin puppet, Assadist, anti-vaxxer because of what it will do for their career going forward. And Corbyn was surrounded by those kinds of people. Mm -hmm. That is terrifying to me because it shows that the only way forward in a place like the UK or the US to take on these forces of sort of permanent undemocratic control the corporate media, the security state is someone from the far right who just doesn't give a fuck and isn't under the same kind of social, cultural and political pressure from within. And it will be someone to the right of Boris Johnson or something like the AFD in Germany that really fills that void that the left has created or the left, the left has left. Yeah, well, that was I mean, the the, the slow motion car crash of the the anti-semitism scandal under brexit well the only way i can put it is fuck up um like i remember having like a, an animated discussion shall we say with somebody who was a part of like uh the the momentum uh local leadership who was also close to uh john landsman who was one of the leaders of the the founder of momentum the sort of yeah. was meant to be the organizing group for corbyn and i said to him well look we have to build at the very least a counter pressure on Corbyn to counterbalance to a degree the pressure that's coming from the ruling class. And the response was, you can't do that. That would be that would undermine him. We all just have to support him. And whatever he does, we have to get behind because, you know, uh, the poor man's under enough pressure as it is. And then he threw he threw uh, former mayor of London, Ken Livingston, under the bus. Yeah. And then people like Jackie Walker, then um, various other people, Chris Williamson. Well, now, who, now course, Ken Loach. And it was all, you know, yeah. ostensibly over Israel and anti-Semitism, but it was really about class politics. And so yeah. Israel provided a cover for destroying people over class politics. Mm-hmm. That's, that's yeah. why Ken Loach, Ken Loach was such a threat. That's what his films are about. And they always go back to this one film about the reality of uh, Zionist and Nazi collaboration in the 1930s and throughout World War II. Um, you know, the Kastner affair, the Havara transfer agreement, the same thing that Ken Livingstone was thrown under the bus for because he mentioned it sort of non sequitur in an interview. Um, but it's all true. It's all real. It really happened. But mm-hmm. but Ken, that was a film that Ken Loach or was a play that he kind of canceled because, uh, you know, came under attack and wasn't able to find a venue. His films are really about class politics. I mean, that's the essence of Ken Loach. So that really shows what this is about, what kind of party Keir Starmer is creating. And that's, you know, the role of Momentum was to actually provide uh, pressure from the professional classes, the managerial classes of the UK, and bring in the kind of woke politics, 
uh, paper over the, the class dynamics, bring in the figures like Owen Jones and the Paul Masons and to uh, instead of, say, let's resist this phony anti-Semitism narrative to, to issue training manuals on how to be more sensitive to our Jewish. Uh, uh, what do they call them? Our, our, they, they don't say brothers and sisters now. They say like our Jewish kinfolk or something, our Jewish <laughs> yeah. siblings, our siblings. Yeah. So, I mean, that was what the role that Momentum played, and it was an absolute cancer in that devoured Corbin and Corbinism. Starmer's role is not to win. It is not yeah. to revive the, the hopes of the Labor Party. It's just to serve as a kind of establishment enforcer, driving out all of these um, forces from the left that believe in actual, you know, using politics to advance the class interests of the majority of the British people, then he'll just be put, he'll, he'll, he'll be removed and they'll bring in someone to lead the new labor party, which a lot looks a lot like the old labor party of new labor under Tony Blair. Yeah. Um, they'd love to bring back Blair himself. He's a little bit too unpopular. So they've been looking for, they've been looking for a new prophet for a long time now. Uh, they it isn't want just, they want they want to get someone like Jacinda Arden, who is actually oh, yeah. a protege of Blair. They're waiting for someone like that. Yeah, I, ideally a woman. Um, that would yeah. be that would be better for them. Definitely. Layla, do you want to go with the next question? All right. Um, okay. Well, speaking of um, <laughs> intervening into politics with a uh, uh, you know a nice face. <laughs> Um, so the doctrine of humanitarian intervention was cited repeatedly in the 1990s when it came to the NATO wars in Yugoslavia. Many of the left to this day will defend these wars. In retrospect, do you see this Clinton period uh, during those NATO war wars earlier in the 90s as having prepared the ground for the imperialist wars we see today and the kind of humanitarian based propaganda that's used to deploy them as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I write about this in the management of savagery, although I sort of uh, coasted over Yugoslavia just because I didn't want to get bogged down uh, when I, I wanted to kind of get into the post 9-11 era just because my book was more about the war on terror and the use of jihadist forces by the U.S. national security state to which undermine geopolitical foes but yugoslavia i mean that 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 tactic was employed there in bosnia for sure but yugoslavia and the understanding of it in the american mind was that it was not only a good war uh that it was not only a war that ended ethnic cleansing you know against the backdrop of the holocaust but that it was a clean war because no american service member died in combat uh, mm. It was fought from the air. And so mm. this became the template for all future American wars and influenced the liberal support for the war in Iraq. Uh, the war in Iraq was supposed to be essentially the same thing, and we'd be greeted as liberators as Clinton and George W. Bush were greeted in Bosnia, uh, their beloved in Albania, by mm. ethnic Albanians and so on. I mean, we saw all those images during the Clinton era. And of course, the U.S. was at the peak of its unipolar hegemony and history had ended. So we went into the post 9-11 era 
under this illusion. And anyone who knows anything about Yugoslavia or history, the reality of Yugoslavia, what was done to Serbia, um, and all of the controversies and the real questions about the official narrative, for example, even about Srebrenica, which was a brutal massacre. Anyone mm-hmm. familiar with that would have known that Iraq was going to be a disaster. But uh, I mean, I am I, I, I the post 9-11 era is what galvanized my entry into journalism and political activism. And I just remember distinctly at that time how much support there was among liberals and sectors of the kind of educated left for what George W. Bush was about to do. And it was because they had supported the R2P intervention in Yugoslavia. And for whatever reason, the Iraq war failed to dampen liberal and left support for future interventions in the Middle East, which were part of the wider program uh, that was introduced in the Pentagon in the days after 9-11, which was to topple seven countries in five years, Mm. Libya, Libya, Syria. um, And now you see the narrative and the debate. There is no debate, but really just the the narrative around Afghanistan is exactly the same, that we need to stay there to save those women. Maybe we'll bring them to Texas. Let's save them and bring them to Texas where they're going to be hunted by abortion patrols. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's um, it's interesting also the kind of rhetoric around um, nation building that's often deployed. Like we're going to rebuild this nation. We're going to build it on liberal democratic grounds. Um, it, it's interesting to see that con- the contradiction between like a brutal war and, you know, I guess the idea of liberal democracy being kind of used all at once in the same propagandistic package. But it isn't, it seems to me like um, people don't really get tired of it though. Like uh, even now with uh, the Afghanistan withdrawal, the same kind of tropes about Afghani women under the Taliban are being like marched out with absolutely no, like no self-awareness about what, you know, what's for instance going on in the United States with Texas or just more broadly about the actual on the ground results of the American occupation when it comes to women's rights and women's um, wellness, uh, which was uh, overall quite detrimental for most women in Afghanistan, save Definitely. some armored based ones. Yeah. I mean, there are academic studies on how harmful the U S military presence was to Afghan women, especially in rural areas. And yet this mentality of the U.S. as a shining city on the hill that can do good around the world hasn't been fully purged or, um, you know, it, it just hasn't been purged from the body of the U.S. left. I mean, I'm not even talking about liberal interventionists. I mean, we see it in the call from a lot of leftists uh, for like Samantha Powers, USAID, to do more to get vaccines to Africa. Because that's got a good history. Yeah, it's got a great history. Uh, These aren't even, you know, anti-malarial vaccines. It's for an airborne respiratory virus. It's difficult to control. The vaccines require boosters all the time. But you see all these leftists saying they want to donate their seventh and eighth booster to the children of Africa without reckoning with the fact that poll after poll shows that 
close to 90% of people in countries like Ghana and across Western Africa, uh, not to mention Central Africa and people who are more difficult to poll in the rural areas are not vaccine hesitant, they're vaccine resistant. They don't want to inject a Western aid package into their veins. Mm -hmm. uh, the New York Times reported on Palestinians in the West Bank uh, in a very condescending fashion, not wanting to take the jab. 85% mm. say they don't want to do it. And the Palestinian Authority, a U.S.-backed dictatorship, is forcing mm. them to do so uh, under penalty of being fired the same way yeah. that many Americans, Canadians are being forced to. Um, but this shows that the mentality, I mean, leaving aside the vaccine debate, this shows that the mentality of R2P humanitarian interventionism has not uh, been it, – it, st it still isn't fully understood it's a um, mission civilatrice, civil, civil, civilizatrice mm -hmm. mentality. It's a neo-colonial mentality, and it's perfectly mm -hmm. embodied in people like Samantha Power, who was a journalist in Yugoslavia, whose role was to serve as a stenographer of NATO and the State Department and generate the CNN narrative of atrocities on the ground, uh, deliver it back to the educated uh, in the East Coast intelligentsia that read The New Yorker and then generate consent for this air war. And we see the same kind of R2P narrative being replicated in this pandemic era of the new normal, except it's not R2P, it's R2V, responsibility to vaccinate. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think people are just uncomfortable with the fact that sometimes, I, I think they're uncomfortable with the idea that there, obviously, in Afghanistan, there are issues with regards to women's rights, obviously, like that's not in question. But I think people are uncomfortable with the idea that, like, even in this case, a non a stance for non-intervention is better, like not intervening in what's going on via the vehicle of American imperialism is better than uh, what's going on in with regards to women's rights in, in Afghanistan, which is still quite bad. And I think the same kind of logic is being applied for the vaccine passports, uh, for the vaccine mandates. Like we don't, we don't know for sure. Uh, the studies have are still ongoing, like including the Pfizer vaccine, which has been approved. It's still doing post marketing studies. It's still not finished its clinical three trials. Um, uh, it's it's a uh, phase three clinical trials rather rather. So we don't know for sure that it will net a benefit um, over whatever severe adverse events it creates like for all age groups especially those that don't have huge rich risk of of, of COVID-19 but I think this idea that sometimes not intervening and not doing anything while it's not the best option it's not the ideal option it's sometimes the best option available is very uncomfortable for people especially yeah. those yeah professionals that are kind of that have this idea in their minds that they're God's gift to earth, like doctors and stuff, like they're, they're here to help people. Like it's very hard for them to accept that, I feel. Absolutely. I mean, when, what the R2P narrative boils down to, once what the architects or the, um, the, the sort of orchestra conductors of this narrative want to induce in the public is a call to simply do something. Yes. They want to... Yes obliterate any capacity for critical thought, induce strong emotions and panic and free-floating anxiety, which uh, then creates the demand to do something, anything, 
which tends to be the most draconian solution. And that's what's led us to, well, it's what led to public support for the war in Iraq. It's what led to public support for Libya. We have to do something because Gaddafi is going to murder everyone in Benghazi. Uh, we have to do something in Syria because Assad is gassing children. Yeah. And people were dying in those countries, by the way. It wasn't all, you know, fake. But the way that the narrative was delivered, and especially with the focus on child suffering, reminds me so much of the kind of propaganda that mm -hmm. is overwhelming us in the current phase of the new normal, where people have to be coerced, the unvaccinated are being demonized, and we're being told that ICUs are filling up with children, so children must be mass vaccinated. Um, and basically, from the center to uh, even the, into the radical left, the call to do something is omnipresent right now. It's universal. Mm -hmm. They don't know exactly what they want to do, but they're willing to give their consent to pretty much anything and that's mm -hmm. also why people have accepted the reinstatement of mask mandates, because masks make them feel like they're doing something, even though there's ran no randomized cluster test showing that cloth masks actually work in reducing the viral transmission of COVID-19. They just, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, it's, I just, to, like, say it's so common, it's such a common rhetoric, rhetorical tool with masks, because you might say that, you might say, you know, there isn't good evidence that masks actually work. Like there isn't, that's very weak evidence, but people will say, well, at least they do, they might do something. They might do something. So it's worth a, it's worth a try even because, you know, they'll claim that the harms aren't that bad. Um, like, yeah. so they'll, they'll always make like this assumption that the benefits outweigh the harms. Like they'll still acknowledge that there might be harms perhaps, but like the benefits, even though small might outweigh the harms, but we don't know that. And, you know, when <laughs> I, I think the problem with, uh, with the way that war is tends to be covered as well is that uh, the United States very consciously, for instance, in Afghanistan, uh, they hired more mercenaries than they sent American troops. And very commonly, the, the when you when uh, the casualties of war were reported in the American press or Canadian press, you only ever heard about the American casualties, which are still important, but you never hear heard about the the Afghani casualties on the Afghan right, right. Afghan army side. Right. And so like, it's engineered in such a way like no one can deny that there's a harm to war, for instance. Um, and I think it's hard to deny that there isn't a harm to masking, especially if you're forcing people to do it. Just coercing someone to do something they don't want to do is a harm. You know, sometimes it's necessary, of course, but it is a harm. Um, but this like engineering of like consent through like trying to create a, you know, we have to do something like the harms are just too great. The risks are just too great. It can be used to justify almost anything, it seems. I don't know what the way out is. Yeah, you know, I I, re I remember uh, I when I was like a adolescent, I used to I was really into the Civil War, and I used to go to Civil War battlefields, and I just walk around with my head down looking for bullets. Uh, mm. You could find them sometimes, and I actually one one day I found one. It was like my this like this highlight of my life at the time. I found it in <laughs> in Bloody Lane at Antietam, which was one of it was the bloodiest battle of the Civil War, and the bloodiest part of the battle took place in this sunken lane. And so I I you know treasured that bullet, and that's the way I feel when I look for news stories that and and that that I, and, and and the way I feel with just walking around with my head down looking for news and information that shows what we all know to be true 
which is that this regime that we're living under is causing enormous human damage. And, you know, I call media every day looking for stories about workers being fired in large numbers because of the mandates. And it's the same thing I had to do also in Syria to uh, find, for example, stories about the suffering that I knew that people on the loyalist side were facing mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. or government soldiers were being killed in large numbers who were young people who are conscripted, um, those kinds of things. Because I feel like my job as a journalist is to provide the other side of the story. And it just requires this monomaniacal focus. Um, one story I tweeted out yesterday which should shock everyone is that 10% of this fleet of school bus drivers for Chicago's public school district were fired. Uh, they said they voluntarily left because they didn't want to take the jab, but they were essentially forced out. Yeah. And that caused the entire fleet to shut down indefinitely. 2,100 students who are mostly special needs no longer have free rides to school. And the mayor of Chicago has told them to take Uber, which will cost yeah. thousands of dollars a month. And they're giving $500 coupons for Uber to everyone, which will cost the Chicago taxpayer a lot. And, you know, I had to look like I was in bloody lane looking for a bullet for this story, which should have been plastered on the front page. I mean, this is crazy human suffering. I'm going to go speak at this rally in like a few minutes at the U.S. Capitol. I don't think we're allowed to actually be on the Capitol because of January 6th. So it's going to be somewhere near it about the eviction crisis and you know the need to cancel the rent but one thing no one can say is that the lockdown did this that the decision that we all accepted to shut down our economy for a few weeks or a few months cost something like 60 million jobs and it's what placed people at the brink of eviction and uh you know it'll be controversial for me to even say that there and it's because these the, the 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 flow of information is completely cut off and it's like you're at the beach with a metal detector looking for dimes and quarters when you're actually looking for stories that should be plastered on the front page exactly and just to echo what you said earlier in the conversation like um information has become so marginalized like if you want to find a different view for instance on the vaccines or the lockdowns like you're saying it very much is from marginalized sources, like yep, yep. Um, on the fringes and which causes the vax sources. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you're 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 grouped up with like, you know, I what I would call probably, yeah, more questionable political positions, like a blanket anti-vax position or a. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So like, yeah, it's unfortunate because then you have to fight back against at once the barrage of counter information that's countering what you're finding, but also having yourself de- like decredited by your forced association with like, say like someone who's just against all vaccines or all medicine or whatever, it might be some extreme view like that. Yeah. Um, who doesn't, you know, is against giving your child a measles vaccine or something, which, you know, uh, I, I don't know anyone. Who, I, I actually <laughs> know a few people who do that, but like, those are what I consider anti-vaxxers, but Yes, it's been expanded. I've been I was called an Assadist, but you know, I don't I'm not a member of the Bath Party. Like, I don't <laughs> believe in Assad. Like I know people who are Marxist Leninists who are like, yes, I'm I, like Lenin is my lodestar. They'll own that. But I don't really know anyone who's an Assadist, but that's what you get called. And 
you know, one of the other points I wanted to make is that it's just so obvious that lockdowns hurt workers. It should just yeah. be obvious. It's so obvious that we're being lied to given all of the hard censorship. It's so obvious that this whole regime, this biomedical security regime that is being ushered in is going to be a massive boon to the global capitalist predator class. It's so obvious that the dirty war on Syria is what is responsible for the refugee crisis. It's so obvious that arming jihadists is a bad idea. Like all of these things are obvious, but it's so hard. It's been so hard to convince people on the left of these over the years. And even I have been caught up. And I mean, I've been learning a lot of the lessons of getting caught up when things are too complicated. And it really, I think it's a Buddhist saying about what true enlightenment is. That when you're when you're hiking up a mountain and you're looking at the mountain, you notice all of the characteristics on your way to the mountain or on your way to the top of the mountain. But ultimately, true enlightenment is when you see the mountain just as a mountain. Mm. And it's just everything's hiding right there in plain sight in front of us. But it's so hard to say it. And everyone's just walking around like. Just just sleepwalking through this era. That's why you need the propaganda and the emotional hysteria and the emotional blackmailing because you need something powerful like that to obscure the obvious. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, so, you need the constant fear of mortality and exactly. yeah. it shuts, it not only shuts down debate, it forces the media consumer to reckon with their own mortality. And if you haven't dealt with your own mortality you're going to and you, you're forced to confront it unexpectedly and you experience mm. free, free floating anxiety, you will likely take a more conservative position on whatever issue threatens you with mortality, whatever. Especially, yeah. especially if you if you threaten one's children, too, like that yeah. ups the ante even more. But yeah, yeah. it's absolutely well, that is the ultimate like um, post 1989 Fukuyamaist um, piece of ideology, which is that it's. It's either this sort of um, however withered and truncated version of what you, they refer to as democracy. It's either that or um, barbarism and death. I mean, yeah. that was all the rhetoric from like Blair or in the early 2000s was it's either our way or literally like the, the Taliban's way. There's, yeah. Because they can't because one of their guiding principles is that class politics is completely dead and cannot be allowed to return then they have to pose every question in the form of like, well, it's either our version, sort of um, um, withered version of a uh, of a democracy. Uh, however, you, know, you might not like that. Or it's um, literal, literal death barbarians at the gate or killer viruses. That's how every single question has been posed, really, as long as I can remember. Certainly. And, yeah. And the virus, as in classical fascist rhetoric, has been merged or rendered indistinguishable from a segment of the public that is supposed to instill fear in those of us who are enlightened and progressive. In the U.S., it's the QAnon MAGA chuds, the Trump troglodytes who are the anti-maskers and are spreading the virus and threatening our children. I've heard Trudeau use similar rhetoric about the unvaccinated so then it becomes fused into the culture war and you're not on the left and you're not progressive if you are taking these positions because it, it 
it, it inevitably lines you up with our ideological foes who are threatening, who are the barbarians inside the gates. Mm. Yeah, and it was the what it this really struck home over over the Brexit thing in particular because we saw like the entire left media class in particular just start screaming that the um, the all these working class Brexit voters were just these uh, uh, you know cave trolls who were dragging in this wonderful cosmopolitan um, nation that they all said they lived in uh, down to some sort of um, into some sort of cartoonish racist nightmare. I remember um, seeing a speech from Paul Mason where he basically just um, got, took on took on the language which bordered on like social Darwinism and eugenicism towards yeah. people, and that really has come back again in the uh, in the recent in the, over the uh, the whole unvaccinated thing. I mean, we had a discussion on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, Elena Lang, who's a German academic, where we critiqued this ridiculous book by this guy called Benjamin Bratton, who's an American academic over in uh, California, who was basically saying, yeah, we should have a biomedical international security state. And that's a good thing. So wow. like, it seems that the, that. oh, it's, it's, it's a real humdinger of a book. Um, <laughs> he concludes it with the line, I am a globalist and I'm far worse than you could imagine. So it's like, it's like something out of Alex Jones's worst imaginings. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's like um, what's his name, the World Economic Forum chief Schwab. Yeah, yeah, Klaus Schwab. You know, he's like a a cartoon of like a German <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, Austin Powers villain. He's talking about transhumanism and literally calling for altering DNA and replacing humans with automated workers. Um, and and you know, actually, uh, Paul Mason has said many of the same things. Oh yeah, like Paul I, Mason is, manages to be even worse in person, unbelievably enough. <laughs> I, you know, I just couldn't understand why this figure was being hailed as the hero of the left around, you know, 2015, 2014. I, I, I was like, who is Paul Mason? And he'd written this book about how we're going to have this communist tech utopia where technology <laughs> will save us all and that we're all going to have infinity pools in the future. And, you know, it was basically like, uh, you know, a, a great reset with uh, – uh, pseudo left Trotsky as characteristics. Oh yeah, like well, both Mason and this Bratton guy, like they both actually remind me of Thomas Friedman. Like uh, I had to, I was forced to read Fried, one of Friedman's opuses, um, the Lexus and the Olive Tree for my undergrad, yeah. and like oh, it's, it, yeah, yeah, that that was bad. But like uh, it's the same, like it's like the the Fukuyamaist dream gone negative. It's like the the sort of the sunny vision of like the Friedman nineties has gone wrong. Yeah. And now they they the only response they have is bringing in more and more authoritarianism, what in you know, classical Marxist terms would be sort of Bonapartist forms of rule. Um, and it's like their their dream has gone sour. And the, the only way they know how to deal with that is compulsion and more and more forms of coercion and state violence. Yeah, absolutely. And w where they lined up on Corbynism was very telling. Oh, yeah. Like um, um, Mason was one of the first to jump on the anti-Semitism smears and declare them to be like valid. Yeah. Yeah. And and he is also a very clever 
liberal interventionist in the way that he talks about he he echoes and replicates the language of a Madeleine Albright about fascism versus democracy, mm. which actually is just a repackaged clash of civilizations, Huntingtonian narrative, but it's applied to strongman leaders uh, who you know com- range from Putin to Erdogan to MBS, and so there's someone bad in there for every progressive, but ultimately what he's doing is calling for the UK, the EU this banker's cartel to take them out. Uh, and I mean, it just became cartoonish over the years to read him and have him call for BAE systems to be supported by the public because they're job creators and (laughs) we need NATO. And yet somehow he remains sort of a voice of the left. Well, it's always been an unfortunate part of like, um, the, the, the milieu in this country, which is like, it stems from like some very, uh, reactionary forms of like so-called Trotskyism uh, yeah. in Britain that um, stem from like the uh, Alliance for Workers' Liberty, who are like open Shackmanites, the uh, the yeah. Max Shackman, the disciple of Trotsky, who Trotsky threw out of the uh, of the Fourth right. International because he was basically because Shackman disagreed with unconditional defense of the USSR in the event of war. But like that tradition. Like in this country, they're the ones who get all the promotions. Like the new statesman always runs guys yeah. like that. Like the Guardian's now full of them. No, um, they, every week they run some new attack on me by this Bloodworth character. Oh, him. Yeah, he's he a the, ludicrous figure. He has the, you know, the perfect name. But he's, obs- it's, he's obsessed with me. Um, he, at least he, he, call, he calls me influential and like builds me up into this bigger figure than I am. So I'm kind of grateful for him. But when I think about these characters, these former revolutionary Trotskyists or current like him, like Mason, the real lodestar for them, I think of is Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens. Oh, yeah, they all want to be Hitchens. They all want to be Hitchens. They emulate his style of writing. They want to embody his sort of gauche persona. Um, they can't handle liquor like he did, although I knew him and he actually wasn't very good at holding his liquor. I, mean, I remember once he passed out on the floor at a you know event and me and his kids like piled toys atop him while he was just like sleeping on his own carpet um but you know he has this larger than life persona and he was a talented writer and that's who they aspire to and for hitchens the lodestar was orwell and yeah. not just you know homage to Catalonia Orwell. It was the Orwell who lacerated the left from the left and mm-hmm. who snitched, who was a, these people are all snitches. That's yeah. He ratted on Paul Robeson to MI5. And, 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 and what was Mason recorded saying about Corbin in private? I mean, it was the same kind of snitch mentality and they know that that is their ultimate value in a society where the left holds no power, their only real value is to the establishment as people inside the left who do serious damage to the left. In fact, that's how Mehdi Hassan marketed himself to the Daily Mail when he wrote them an unsolicited application to be a columnist. Yeah, yeah. Um, Apologies for him. He's one of our worst exports, along with James Corden. Absolutely horrible. Yeah. He's probably our worst export. We got to build the wall against the <laughs> yes. like hey 
you know, you've took them, you're keeping them. Um, like, we don't want Corden or Mehdi Hassan back. He's too busy. Isn't he on NBC now or MSNBC. Peacock or something? They put him in some, like, basement at MSNBC to just uh, be their little um, kind of the closest thing they can approach to anything left wing. They're, they're like adversarial voice and it's Mehdi Hassan. They have this separate kind of NBC cutout channel called Peacock that I think is online only. And he's yeah. like one of the stars of Peacock, but you see him going there and you realize that everything he has done, every single move he's made from the moment he gets up, to the time he goes to sleep was designed to get him that little show at MSNBC. And <laughs> there was like nothing authentic about him at any point. I mean, this is a guy who like, I heard tapes of him. They're online of him like preaching at a Shia mosque. And he's talking about Yazid being a homosexual and a music lover and how Yazid needs to be destroyed. And he sounds like he's a literal hate preacher uh, denouncing homosexuals and people who like music. And then the next thing you know, he's at MSNBC, like the woke liberal channel as their sort of cosmopolitan progressive pre presenter. Yeah. He, I, I, he used to come, I, I went to a speech of his in Toronto. I, he spoke at an Islamic conference that I was in attendance. Um, and like, he was saying all sorts of things like that. Like he was, he, at the time he presented himself as this like a uh, voice for the religious Islamic kind of left, I guess. These people don't have any principles really though. They just, they're just careerists. They'll change. You can see people's opinions change in real time when as it, at a faster pace than I think at any time, like opinions just change from one week to the next and no explanation given according to whatever the needs of the ruling class is. Like it, you know, even a few months ago, the vaccines were 100 percent effective. Now they're not 100 percent effective. That's why we yep. need boosters. Like yep. there's just these people have absolutely no principles whatsoever. They don't, you know, even as scientists and doctors, they have no respect for the scientific method whatsoever. They're they're just yep. mouthpieces. Yeah, yep. that's it. They just parrot yep. government I mean, lines. I saw you guys going after Richard Wolf. Uh, who, oh, God, him. Gosh, ugh. Whose expertise on the economy doesn't translate well to basic medical logic. <laughs> or um, a critique or... <laughs> of capitalism and its role in the medical industry. Yep. I mean, there's that, but he basically said, um, you know, how we don't have we don't have mandates like, well, <laughs> why do we have stop signs on the road and, and seatbelts for cars and, 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 and driver's licenses and. And, and, you know, airbags. And, and it's, it was just like every <laughs> stupid metaphor you could marshal. But as soon as you employ, as soon as you acknowledge that these vaccines, like most vaccines, do not prevent viral transmission, then all the metaphors collapse. And all you're left with is a call by Richard Wolf, Mr. Socialist Economist, for the mass firing of workers because they won't accept a regular medical intervention. Yeah, Mr. Democracy at Work. Mr. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's transform all the workplaces into cooperatives so that the boss can't exert authority over you is now calling for vaccine mandates. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. Like, that, yeah, what, just what really clean ones out of there. Yeah. I feel like a lot of these people, like when they speak their 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 statements are just full of very, very rudimentary. Like, I feel like I've become a kind of like this um, Stefan Molyneux, Molyneux uh, type figure. I'm like, not an argument. <laughs> It's just logically. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hate 
part of what I've become, I kind of hate, which is that I'm like becoming a logic boy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm like, none of you are using logic. It's all logical fallacy. And it is. none of you will debate logic. It's all <laughs> emotion and manipulation are like, you don't want to give them to the global South. So it's like, then I be, I start to think, what am I becoming Ben Shapiro? Like, well, I'm sure I'm sure Ben will be a developing opinion on vaccine mandates when his paycheck comes in. Exactly. Um, I mean, that, yeah. you talk about unprincipled figures. Oh, yeah. I actually, like, I actually did debate him once, although I didn't really know I was going to and didn't really. He wasn't what he is today, uh, where he goes on Joe Rogan and he, kind of like lowbrow normies take him seriously. But it was on Al Jazeera on this show called The Stream, and we were talking about Palestine. And he, they had to turn his mic off for half the show because he screamed continuously. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, he had written this op-ed for this sort of right-wing site called Town Hall, which was published by the Heritage Foundation, calling for just openly calling for the genocide of Palestinians. Uh, he said, uh, "What was it called?" Uh, transfer is not a dirty word, he called it. All Palestinians should be removed from Israel proper, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip to Jordan and Egypt. We need to do this right away to preserve a Jewish state. Transfer is not a dirty word. Those were That was like the piece from top to bottom. And yet he still managed to break through as this major figure. Imagine if I had said something like that about Jews. I mean, yeah, I mean – there's a very clear contradiction between his whole notion of Western civilization and the the result of which has been, you know, liberal democracy and an ethno state in the form yeah. of, for instance, Israel. But I, it's just, yeah, I, I just, I, I don't even, these people, I don't even deem worthwhile rebutting on the basis of their, what the facts that they're putting out, like no. just, they're just I don't like fallacious. I don't quote tweet Ben Shapiro and attack him like because it's just like it, it just feels like I'm stooping too low and it's just too obvious. <laughs> but Richard Wolf, like what he said was just so revealing. It just showed. Yeah. The These people are of, compromised. It's not just compromised. It's like there's a lack of critical and independent thinking. And I feel like a lot of even Marxist Leninists I know are unable to think critically about what's taking place right before their eyes because of peer pressure or because China did this or that and that they think in strictly ideological terms and they've wound up actually creating space for the global capitalist agenda without yeah. even knowing it. Well, it yeah. was it's the same on Brexit again. Like they, the entire, other than like a few marginal groups, which I was in, um, the most of the left went along with the the anti-Brexit line and they ended up lining up with the city of London and quite a lot of Wall Street and yeah. being in favor of staying in the European Union. And it's the same now, like because like I think for a lot of the the MLs in this country, the Marxist Leninists in this country, they're afraid of even talking about um, the virus and the response to it because they've ingested this idea that it's going to lead back to like a strengthening of like the uh the right-wing anti-china narrative when like yeah, the reality the, is I, that's not that's just simply not the case we're talking about our own countries which are like the, the western imperialist powers now whatever happens in china is the business of the chinese working class 
Yeah, I mean, and I have to, you know, full do, I don't know if it's a full disclosure, but just I fell for Brexit early on, the narrative that, you know, Polish workers were being beaten in the streets, uh, that it was leading to hate crimes. I saw uh, Farage leading it and saw it as a far right power play. Um, you know, I think there still is something to the fact that Nigel Farage was at the forefront. Um, but when I saw the, that, the, that the campaign to destroy Britain, and I remember visiting London, I think it was 2017, 2018, and seeing these trucks in the middle of the city calling on people to like push for a new referendum. And I thought, you know, people voted for this. Like, <laughs> what is happening? How is this even legitimate? And it caused me to think more about what the EU was and conclude that, you know, this that the opponents of Brexit were just simply hypocritical, undemocratic, contemptuous of the working class and and, and, and a, you know, a greater threat. Um, and then, you know, early on in the pandemic, China was being demonized. And so I felt the I, I, I feel still compelled to defend China against new Cold War rhetoric and just the new Cold War itself. It would be disastrous uh, for the and it already is disastrous to be in a new Cold War with China. But that's not where I live. I've never been there. And I'm dealing what I'm contending with is life in a capitalist society under a ruling class that not only wants war with China, but is at war with its own people, sanctioning its own people. So it's like at a certain point, you have to just make a decision that everything can't be based on a fantasy of, uh, you know, China, uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics uh, being implanted suddenly in your own society when the reality is workers are being thrown out of their jobs and subjected to the ravages of the free market. How can any yeah. socialist support that? How can any socialist support <laughs> mandates that throw workers out of their jobs and leave them with literally nothing? Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> well, it, it's why they have to employ demonization. You have to say that these are reactionary elements. These are, or to quote the uh, the anarcho-communists, these are bananists yeah. or these are uh, Le Penists or something like that or Trumpites. They have yeah. to keep they have to keep recreating for themselves like a fantasy version of the working class and a fantasy version of the ruling class, because yeah. otherwise th th this doesn't work. And like, again, we saw it in Brexit. We saw it like over the Trump thing where like you so-called fucking democratic socialists were like screaming for, you know, more war on Syria because we've got to save the Kurds or, you know, the, maybe the FBI should remove Trump in a coup and maybe that'd be good. Yeah. And, uh, and the, I think and it's, it's just, it's going to stop here. It won't, it, this will be the last mandate. It's not yeah. the, the vaccine passports. They won't include other government mandates that you have to abide by in order to participate in society and have your QR code to enter the playground. It's, it's just going to stop here. Yeah. Uh, well, nope. they've been, they've been trying to introduce like a national ID card for over 30 years in this country. Uh, yeah. The security state wants it really badly and has, but they keep getting frustrated by the fact that before now, the middle class didn't want it. Now this this might give them another window to push this through. Um, and the, the, but again, like this this isn't something that can even be talked about now.
Yeah, and then going back to the logical fallacy, the I see all these sort of MSM hacks and middle-brow comedians trying to obfuscate the reality of a digital immunity passport or a national ID by saying, oh no, the tyranny, I have to have a library <laughs> card to go to the library. I have to have a driver's license to drive. I have to have a passport to enter other countries. So, False economy. Exactly. And, and, and that... Anytime I question, you know, am I going crazy here? Am I really right? Yeah. Then I look at the arguments on the other side and it just makes it very clear that they don't actually have arguments. You know, it's just deception. Yeah, the, the problem is that I think for, you know, to speak to the Marxists, uh, the those are the intelligentsia that I pay most attention to. The problem is that when the, the going got tough, um, they couldn't hold the line. Like they couldn't, you know, even myself, when I was first formulating an anti-lockdown position, when I first met Alex, um, I was really struggling with the fact that I had to be associated with the right because the right was who were generally against the lockdowns. Yeah. And I was like, can I take this position? Like, you know, the right is taking this position. I, I'm against the right in most on most issues. But it seems like the only people supporting it, uh, who are against the lockdowns are right wing people. And. I, you know, I had, to, it was actually a, a really kind of painful soul searching process for me, at least, because I was like, what if I'm wrong here? Like, what if this is actually an anti-worker position that I'm taking? Um, but yeah, you, like, I think being, um, you know, a journalist, uh, intelligentsia generally, it actually takes an element of courage and an element of perseverance and consistency that a lot of, I think at this time, because people who generally do do these things come from quite coddled backgrounds they yeah. haven't had to a big challenge in their lives like ever and yeah. so for them it's just like they're not able to tolerate the pressure of being like even called right wing or whatever like they're right. not able to deal with it and right. but it, it, like principles are principles it doesn't matter who's taking them the truth is the truth and that's just it like that's just it or they need to feel certain that they'll be backed up by some alternative mob that will defend them against being called a Russian agent, you know, that there needs, or they need validation from others more senior than them or more expert than them in order to start to make headway on a critical narrative. Um, and yeah. I just see so many um, journalists and pundits who've been critical in the past on issues of war and peace, unable to think independently on this issue of the new normal because they're not receiving any external validation from people or groups that they quote unquote trust because it it all it's it, it's it's led still by the right in Canada and the US the resistance is still kind of largely led by the right so it requires almost this um, total trust in yourself and belief in yourself that many just don't have. Uh, they need they need others to provide them with the guidance, and uh, that's not what took place with me <laughs> on Syria. I kind of just came to the conclusion. I, no, I was I forced myself to stop compartmentalizing and acknowledge that I had done something really wrong early on and gone against what my principles were. And I spent weeks meditating on the issue and researching mm -hmm. 
because I was preparing to take down what I saw as the core plank of the interventionist narrative, which was the white helmets. I took off from work. I was just like every day I'd like just sit down and pour over articles and everything I'd missed. And then I started calling people who had attacked me and criticized me on the left. I wasn't that outspoken. I just wrote one really stupid piece in 2012 sorry, 2013 that I regretted. And I, but I would call them and I would say, you know, you know, what's the deal? What do you think? How can I fight back on this? I didn't have to do the same thing because, you know, I was always, I always questioned the lockdown, but I didn't say anything about it. I questioned the necessity of universal vaccines, the whole thing, but I didn't say anything about it. I was afraid the gray zone would be censored, but in deciding to speak out, I did this, I went through the same process of meditation trying to find others uh, who could help me. And, you know, I didn't receive any validation from anybody who was like a blue check mark on Twitter, a fellow, a journalistic colleague. They didn't exist. I couldn't yeah. really find them, but I found it out there in the ether uh, reading studies. You know, one question I yeah. had that really helped clarify things for me and Layla, you were talking about, you know, asymptomatic spread, how that help the lack of the, the, the non-existence of asymptomatic spread and the lockdown narrative, how that was clarifying for you. For me, it was natural immunity. Yeah. And just finding study after study after study <laughs> that were buried and just being like, oh, yeah, I learned this shit in fifth grade. Like, what the <laughs> hell? And that destroys the uh, logic or the justification for mandates and passports. It totally destroys it because you're talking about millions of people. Uh, needing to get vaccinated who have stronger antibodies than people who are vaccinated who are going to be forced out of work and forced out of society. So that was really illuminating for me. And then since I've spoken out, I've been deluged with mail, like, you know, emails, direct messages. My DMs are open from fellow leftists and people across the country and across the West who are not just thanking me, but seeking some kind of solidarity yeah. like what do we yeah. do and they're and it's different from syria because they are under their families are under attack yes. they're not just like peace yes. activists or anti-war they're like my child they're going yes. to vaccinate my 13 year old child who is a distance runner and he's a boy and they're mm -hmm. he is uh like i don't want him to get myocarditis yeah yeah it I, i'm i'm just feeling such a wave of familiarity because the same thing has happened like people will send me messages be like thank you so like they just a lot of people are just happy to finally find someone or some person who's speaking that matches their reality like that matches yeah. what they've actually been intuitively they've intuited just from living their lives you know and from being faced with like um authoritarian mandates and like all of the gaslighting that goes on in the Canadian media. Like there's stories every day about like, you know, vaccine passports aren't so different. Don't you remember the yellow cards that we used to have as kids? <laughs> so, you know, it's just so much gaslighting. It, I, I don't, I never liked that word, but it really does depict what's going on. And just psychologically, it really is a form of psych psychological warfare, I find. Yeah. And yeah. to find a journalist like yourself that has a big platform and things to say, to actually be like, no, actually, you're saying what you're feeling is is completely valid. Like you, sh it's fine to not be happy to have your child forced to take an experimental vaccine when they clearly don't need it. That's completely fine. Is I think immensely helpful. And I I think 
and as you say, this is hitting people harder than these other issues because they're being themselves faced directly like yeah. with all of these impositions and these um, infringements on the rights and civil liberties in a way that I certainly had not experienced until now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's very powerful uh, it, it, for me to experience the lived, ex- to, to, for, for me to just uh, be presented with the lived experiences of people and how they feel pushed against the wall yeah and and the feeling of powerlessness but the yearning to fight back and resist and i think from a left-wing point of view there are two things there are three things we can do right now and it's why it was important for me to come on this podcast which is just to connect with people who are speaking out against the new normal uh, who are anti-imperialist and come from the left and that's first of all just to connect we need to do a survey of left people left commentators journalists and websites outlets that are taking this on uh, and then bring them together and start to organize number two it is not possible to argue with the branch covidians i tried it with a bunch of um colleagues and i don't mean you know necessarily colleagues at the gray zone but just journalistic colleagues who are people i've known for years and it's just not possible you cannot talk them you cannot reason them out of something they did not reason themselves into and they are afraid that that they become afraid of you if you even try it just breeds resentment and it's dangerous to force people around you to dig themselves into a position that they may want to come out of later on. So space has to be created for them to acknowledge that they were wrong as they might have been on something like Syria. Mm. Um, and that's part of the problem of social media is that people feel so compelled to say, state their opinion and then maybe they want to walk it back a few years later, but they're going to get attacked for walking it back as being inconsistent because they, they've put it on the record. Prior to social media, the advent of social media, it was harder for people to put opinions on the record at like a, mo- a moment's notice. So that's a problem. And I think avoiding that and instead focusing on highlighting the contradictions and creating um, – or, or continuing to look for the buried news and talking to people who are experiencing the pain of the new normal regime uh, to just show the, the to, to highlight the protests, to show French stormtroopers beating people for simply trying to enter a shopping mall, forcing our uh, leftist colleagues to look at what's being done and what, you know, in the name of policies that they've supported is going to cause, it's already happening. It's causing confusion among a lot of them that I see, and it's causing some of them to approach me and ask for more information. That's happened in a matter of weeks. And then the, That's great. And then the yeah. third thing is that it's important to accept the that we're going to be attacked, stoned in sort of symbolic fashion but that we have to stay out there and just continue to be uh, sort of beacons 
in a dark and very turbulent sea uh, until other ships can kind of come to shore and to take the attacks and to, in most cases, ignore them, not fall into the vitriol. Um, that's, I think, important psychologically once we recognize that so many people have been hypnotized, that the more that we just continue speaking out consistently, that it will it'll slowly break through the hypnosis. Uh, I think we'll be absolved by history, but I only I think we only have a few months before the new normal becomes consolidated, and so there needs to be a certain sense of urgency. Well, truth will have her day. Um, I think I I always I always think. But um, you're absolutely right on having to connect with other people, form new connections. Um, yeah, just be courageous and brave in the face of unprecedented attacks on civil liberties and rights is something that our forefathers and mothers did and we have to do now. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, thank you all for, um, you know, being a voice in the wilderness right now. I would look forward to talking more. Yeah, thanks, Max. Yeah, this thank has you. been it's been a really great uh, discussion on this, and uh, um, yeah, knock them dead at the Capitol today. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm a little late for that, but uh. <laughs> <laughs> we will let you go. Thank you so much, All right. Max. All right, thanks, thanks Max. a lot. It's been great. All right, good talking to you both.